If you are experiencing any form of melancholy, stay in your home. I repeat, stay in your home. Occupy your mind. Occupy your hands. Do not look out the window in the afternoon dreaming of the past, or far-off things, or absent people, or dead people, or the sea. People experiencing melancholy have been turning into almonds on the street. Do not eat these almonds. Do not step on these almonds. If you do find an almond, or if a family member becomes an almond, do put him or her in a Ziploc bag and deposit it in the nearest mailbox. The theater, the theater. Is that McDonald's? Uh, what? Is that the McDonald's thing? It, n- no. No, it wasn't. I don't know. I'm loving it is what you're thinking of. He's doing which I think is from like that. Yeah. NBA well, Street Volume One soundtrack yeah. or something. On it's like an old, like yeah, it's like an old like soul, like. <laughs> could be like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, oh I, know exactly I can't wait for our jazz podcast that we're gonna do. Oh, trash. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I do want to know though. You know, uh, how are y'all doing? Because I'm last, fucking perfect. Yeah, last week we were we did uh, our right stuff and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and we were in rare form. We were we were we were cooking. We were having a good time. We were in giggle zone. <laughs> it's true. We were but in, it was, in a lot of giggle zone, yeah. But it was fun. Like, I had a blast. I did yeah, too. no, I it was great. Too. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. It was good right. times. It was yeah. great. Um yeah, otherwise I'm I'm good. I as we were talking pre pre show, I uh just got back from a camping trip, socially distanced. Whoa. Where did you go again? Real it outdoors, wasn't Ohio. Man. No, it was just north of Santa Barbara. There's a cluster of campgrounds right up oh, there. Right. So it's about a it's about, you know, hour and a half to two hours from, from LA proper. And it was just it was just bliss. It was I was uh, so bli- I just, I kept making just, dad noises. Just dad noises just releasing, <laughs> releasing tension from my butt. Fuck yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, which is another thing I meant to bring up um, mm-hmm. in in our private Slack conversations. I don't yeah. think, and maybe it was for the best, that during our August Wilson podcast, did we once mention that mouths and butts are the same things? That's true. Uh, we had a we guest. So we were on a best behavior. Uh, we had Raphael as our guest, and we were probably just being nice. What was I reading the other day? I, it's going to come back to me. I was reading something the other day about mouths and butts being the same thing but it was god damn what i was reading well you were probably reading about deuterostomes so what deuterostomes are are like animals where the anus is the first thing to form and the second thing to form is the mouth and they basically constitute the same they're the same thing 
Okay, so a durostomia, all right, is a subtaxon of the bilateria branch of the subkingdom, Eumotazoa. Are you reading this off so, of Wikipedia? No. Oh. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's we, half of the podcast, but. Right. We as humans, uh, don't give that away. That's true. Um, no, it's it's true. Uh, Wikipedia is a great resource for uh for a lot of our uh, basic facts that we need, and then we go from there. Um, but I will say this: um, humans are deuterostomes, so our mouths and our butts. <laughs> so my asshole was formed before my mouth. No, at yeah. the same t- same time. Or at the same time. Oh, well, it's <sighs> technically deuterostome means in Greek second mouth. Ah. Okay. So okay. we can get into this. This is a whole other thing. Yeah, I yeah. Well, I just uh, wanted to acknowledge our catchphrase. T- can can y'all also just imagine? We used to say this. Um, what if butt crack butts didn't have butt cracks? Oof! It'd be <laughs> <laughs> just think about it. Okay, give me one second. Um, I thought about it. I'm done. Welcome to Theater Theater, <laughs> the theater podcast for theater people, made by three theater nerds from the la theater scene i'm jay bailey bertram i'm cj merriman and i'm scott leggett and each week we get together to discuss debate and disseminate the evolutions of the great playwrights and this is our mini series entitled dead man's podcast covering the works of a playwright who you most definitely have heard of if you went to theater school in the last decade sarah rule sarah rule everybody sarah not she's not here yeah. That'd be cool. No. Sarah Rule, everybody. <laughs> oh, she's not here. Um, yeah. so yeah, so like how was how was the last couple weeks of reading her plays? How'd y'all feel? I felt like these plays were written for me specifically. What does that mean? <laughs> I just she was whether it's relationships or body issues or how women are with other women or the history of relationships, I I just connected to it a hundred percent. Scott? um i feel like uh i have i have mixed feelings about uh, about and when i say mixed feelings i don't mean negative there was nothing that i read that i was like oh fuck this yeah but there was uh, some meh meh in in what we're in what we are going through and and but i found her absolutely fascinating i realized that uh well i might be jumping ahead a little bit i i jump away I had seen her adaptation of Orlando done at the Actors Gang here in the mm. early aughts, sure. but didn't realize it until I was doing research on this that it was a Sarah Rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Orlando. I love the book. I love the Tilda Swinton movie. I think it's just just yeah. pure genius on, yeah. on every level. And I remember really liking the production. It was like one of the first things, may have been the very first thing I'd seen at Actors Gang, and I think I sought it out because... Um, it was directed by Piven, um, and so I wanted to see that. But that was sort of my only real knowledge. I mean, I've, I've known who Sarah Rule was. I know the names of her shows. I just haven't seen a bunch and hadn't read a bunch and until now. So I'm excited to talk about it and get how you guys feel about it. What about you, B? Uh, yeah, I mean, I went into this thinking I felt one way about her and her, her plays, and I came out the other end. 
<laughs> I went in the mouth and I came out the butt. <laughs> oh, what? Um, uh, let's just say that. But mouths and butts are the same thing, so that's not a negative comment. So you I'm came just in saying. the butt sure. and out the mouth. I went. I went. Yeah, I, I came in the butt. <laughs> Which is its fine own thing. It's its yeah, own. And it's then great. I was, it's great. And then I was I was spit out the mouth. Um, no, I truly had a lot of feelings about Sarah Rule going in. I was excited to put her on this list for this season um, for a lot of reasons, and I came out yeah feeling some new things. I'm excited to get into it, but I want to hear y'all's c- c- context. Uh, with her like what, what, what before I put her on the list what what did you know about her had you read her before had you seen her before go me none I uh. I had nothing the the thing that hit me about her was before we started all of this I actually started um asking a ton of our friends and theater people like who when I say playwright who's the first person you think about and mm-hmm. then also who's your favorite and Sarah actually came up quite often as people's favorite playwrights. Yeah. I feel like she's writing women like me, which is something I haven't experienced as much as in other playwrights. Yeah. Like I said, I had seen that Orlando production and otherwise there, a friend of mine said, I saw something else with them, but I don't remember having seen that. There was a conversation that happened during the camping trip where we talked about, and some of the people had had experiences doing Sarah rule. And there was very, a very mixed reaction to to it to her overall work mm-hmm. i'm not met on sarah rule i'm met, met on a couple of specific plays that we'll talk about more in depth yeah i have had the luxury of seeing all three of the plays that we're covering <gasps> wow on stage wow wow awesome so and i've read a few of her other plays i've read stage kiss uh, I've read Dead Man's Cell Phone, which is what our miniseries is named after. We're not covering Dead Man's Cell, Cell Phone, but it worked with the the podcast. It was funny, and also I love that play. Everyone should go read it. And The Clean House is really great. Uh, but I went and saw a production of Eurydice at the William Inge School of Theater in Independence, Kansas, <laughs> which I've pro- talked about on the podcast before, and um, it was interesting I think that production has tinted a lot of my feelings about that play Hmm. because I didn't like it, Hmm. but I liked the idea of it. And I remember thinking, I bet this is better in a different place. Right. But uh, we'll get to that. Then I saw at KCACTF, shout out, Region Mm. 7, um, (laughs) I went to, uh, uh, you know, they invite four productions to every region uh, of different schools the judges choose what they thought was best uh, and they bring it best for the festival um, that are all very different one of my shows got brought once Anatomy of Grey sp- starring Teddy Trice who we did a uh, nice. artist spotlight yes. with thanks uh, Teddy thanks Teddy uh, <laughs> but they brought Melancholy play one year I don't remember the schools I think it might have been Minnesota Duluth I think and Duluth? Duluth and it was one of the most phenomenal productions I've ever seen on stage. I still think about it all the time, which might also tint the way I feel about that play. Uh, And then I saw a small community theater production in Wichita of uh, In the Next Room. Really? For the vibrator play. In Wichita? In a small little church basement. 
I say yay, Wichita. Good no, work. No, I'm saying that's where some of the best theater happens is in Man. small basements in the Midwest. I'm telling sure, you. And sure. they just they rented out the space and they did it. It was fine. Uh, <laughs> but I had never seen it. And I had only read it, so I was excited to see it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's fun. That's good. It, I liked it. Um, so I I do have a lot of thoughts now about her, but I'm excited to get into it. And I think we might as well just, like, drop the bomb on them with some Scottopedia. Scottopedia. Sarah Rule. <laughs> Was born January 24th, 1974 mm. uh, in uh, Wilmette, Illinois. She's Good year a, for wine, 74. 74 <laughs> Especially wine. Especially in Wilmette, Illinois. That's what I've heard. <laughs> um, her mother, uh, Kathleen Rule, earned a PhD in language literacy and rhetoric from the mm-hmm. University of Illinois and mm-hmm. became an English teacher as well as an actress and a theater Go director. Go fighting Illini. Oh. Yeah. My brother went there for pre-law school. <laughs> Meh, whatever. He goes, Meh. I, I went to the best Big Ten school. Oh, oh right. Yeah. Uh, her father, Patrick Rule, became a marketer of toys with an appreciation for literature and music. Uh, her older sister, Kate, is a psychiatrist. Um, and then, interestingly enough, in 2005, Rule married child psychiatrist Tony, I'm going to butcher this name uh charuvastra tony charuvastra uh he teaches a course at nyu that utilizes in the next room as a required reading Mm. Uh, and they have love that yeah they have three children Anne, and then twins william and hope and uh twins show up later in her work and uh, a lot of other stuff twins also show up in wandavision they sure do all right, let's. Uh, <laughs> let's I don't care. Let's keep going. Digression. Let's keep going. So she comes from sort of a, a gloriously nerdy, intellectual, uh, academic family. Um, okay, ready? Okay, I got truths and lies. Truths All and right. lies. Truths All and right. lies. So I got two truths and a lie. Okay. Okay, truths and lies. Uh, Sarah Rule used to write filthy limericks for an adult magazine to pay for college. Hmm. In third, Sarah, right? In, Miss Rule, Miss Rule. Uh, in third grade, uh, she says she got sent a poison pen pal from a bully, and her response to it was to correct the punctuation and send it back. Um, and then in fourth grade, uh, she wrote a courtroom drama about landmass dispute between an isthmus and an island. Uh, which her fourth grade uh, teacher refused to stage. Uh, three, uh, two truths and a what lie. What was the first one again? Uh, she, wrote, uh, she wrote filthy limericks for an adult magazine to pay for college. I'm going to say two is not true. Okay. So you're saying that in the third grade, she did not get a poison pen pal letter from yeah, a... Yeah, third, third graders aren't that smart. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say she did not... Write filthy limericks for to pay for college. Bailey is correct. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So the other two are true. <laughs> <laughs> the other two track. The other two track really hard. The first yeah. one feels like something that I would have come across. Like I watched a lot of interviews with her. I feel like that's a story she would have started every interview. On. Right, 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 right. She's yeah. um, you know, she's she's a very quiet. 
person and yeah. you know, hasn't led a life of weirdness and you know it's just not like you know samuel beckett and you right. know, running weapons in world war ii for the uh alliance you know so. she's not a cowboy she's not a cowboy she's, she's not, not a, a cowboy. sexy cowboy who i want to kiss but yeah but that's um it's fine that's the big stuff there she went to brown she was a student of paula vogel that's going to come up. Uh, I've got some questions and Sounds things about to say right. about that. There's the also a, fan, there's a fantastic interview uh, in Bomb Magazine, which is basically a dialogue between Paula Vogel uh, and Sarah Rule, which is mm. really, really worth the read because you're just awesome. like, it's like nerd out central. I loved yeah. it. I loved it. That's fun. Yeah. So that's Scottopedia. Yo, she went to Interlochen. She did. Funny I didn't story. want to bring that up, but uh, yeah, uh, Interlochen Arts Camp. Yeah, that's uh, all. That, <laughs> I known, don't know a whole. Is that where a ton of famous people fucking? Uh, it's where a lot of theater nerds, no. theater and arts nerds go to. I, I have had friends who have taught there at Interlochen. And oh, okay. It's like a yeah. summer camp for, for. It's a creative arts summer camp, and I had a million friends who went there, and I never got to go. Oh. Uh, and it's in Michigan, and people live for it, and it's like can of cuck, but with theater and film and stuff. Yeah. I always had a job on the summer. Whoa, big stuff. <laughs> Pe- peeling corn. Which is why I'm working. peeling corn. No, Pe- we were not peeling corn. We were detasseling corn, which uh. basically meant we were cutting off its testicles. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you. Were Which is sh- very Sarah Rule. But you no, it's more sh- Sarah Kane. Yeah, right? But you, weren't sh- <laughs> you weren't shucking it. No, shucking is different. <laughs> Y'all need to... Listen, listen. Uh, <laughs> I'm from Kansas and I don't know shit about any of that. Um, Wait, did you ever work in a cornfield, though? No. Okay, I mean, that was kind of like a rite of passage where I was from. That's all. Well, it's you're like, a it's city more, boy. It's more we can call wheat. you a city boy where I'm. It's from. wheat and livestock in Kansas. It's not really corn. Yeah, well, you castrate livestock and you cut wheat. No. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um, the Midwest wars scene? are over. You detangle livestock. <laughs> remember that Tangle scene it. in Napoleon Dynamite with the chickens? That's what I always picture people in 4-H doing. <laughs> I was never in 4-H. I was just in FFA. Well, same thing. Um, it's not <laughs> future farmers. Of it's not future farmers of heritage. Anymore. Um, so we've digressed into a pool of CJ's tears. Yeah, so I got gonna... a. I'm not gotta, crying. I'm perfect. I got. Um, <laughs> I got a split. Thanks, guys. Good. Bye, Listen, Scott. I'm good. Uh, I got bye, better Scott. stuff to do. Bye, Scott. Oh my Aww. goodness. We've hit a low. We've hit a low. Um, let's talk about. Our first up play, which is is Melancholy Play. CJ, break it down. CJ's Breakdown. Tilly's Melancholy... Tilly's melancholy is of an exquisite quality. She turns her melancholy into a sexy thing and every stranger she meets falls in love with her. One day, inexplicably, Tilly becomes happy and wreaks havoc on the lives of her paramours. We sure. should we should sure. talk we should talk about almonds. We should talk about almonds. Yes. Tell me about almonds. <laughs> Listen, I've really been into Marcona almonds lately with truffle salt on them. It's kind of like my favorite snack. 
You're eating little amygdalas. You're little eating amygdalas. little little bags of depression. That's what you're doing. The, the audit, the that audit, sounds the, about right. Yeah. So I would like to I would like to break into real quick. I sent to you guys Paula Vogel this week tweeted, um, and I found it interesting. And this is what she said. I've read lots of plays the past two months. Why do writers obsessively describe the tempo cutoffs, unspoken thoughts, and an algebra before the play? It becomes fetishistic. Uh, I will glean it from your format. There's no control on the page of actors you may never meet. Format, please. Um, well, I just, that's, that's... So says the Vogel. Amen. Well, and that's what I was wondering, is that you have this wonderful symbolism of the almond in it, and she uses it in several different ways. The juxtaposition between the bitterness of the almond and the repeated mention of the sweet shop. Lorenzo keeps talking about mm-hmm. he was abandoned in front of a sweet shop, and I get, like, that's cool. But then she goes in, in before the play, and she does the whole discussion about the part of the brain and how it's the most important part of the brain. Uh, and then she does the, what you might call it, the symbol, uh, the Mandoria, uh, a symbol that, de- uh, that derives its name from the Italian word for almond as it contains an almond shape. And it's like a series of circles and wrapped around a circle, but the audience doesn't know any of this. Like it's a little bit different than August Wilson setting the tone in a, in a, for the artists of the show. But I feel like that that never gets expressed in the play for an audience to, to, to glam on to. There's a lot in the play. I'm just saying that it was I noticed that as she goes along in her evolution, that there's a lot more precision and description in her pre-show stuff, which I really, really appreciate. I think it's great and it's poetic and she sense she does set a tone Um I don't know if this is fully what Vogel is talking about in her tweet, but it was just something I noticed. It was like, oh, you're dropping this information on on me and it's great and it's fascinating and, and it feeds into the play. But at what point does the audience become aware of it? Because I guarantee you that 99 percent of the audience isn't going to be aware of that. That's... Yeah, agreed. I think, you know, it there's it's half and half for me, like some of the notes to me are and some of the things in there are candy for an artist for a director or for an actor and that's kind of what she's dropping in right is these moments for people to really get like excited for themselves she's giving gifts to it to the actors in a way rather than to the audience Mm. which does dip into something that i i mean i've argued i think even on this podcast about like what is theater for is it for the actors or is it for the audience right and i think in some ways it's for both um but there's a purpose behind it being for the audience and there's a passion behind it being for yourself right, right. so mixing those two things can be good and i think she's allowing that in some ways for passionate artists to glom onto a, a show like this and say i have a vision for this i i see what she's saying i get something from that and therefore i can tell a better story yeah okay uh, i got you you know i i mean i'm I'm sort of defending it, but I also had a couple times where I rolled my eyes. Right. You know? I think I was the same way. Would like I could see like doing something cool as like um an installation in the lobby of a theater where you could go and really like put up like really detailed mm. like graphs and images of what this is and just have the audience kind of go, What? And then as you would walk out if you would notice it again, if you could catch the the audience's eyes and then people will go, Oh, Hey, that's kind of cool. 
But right. that's separate. That's an augmentation and not within the confines of the play. Right. So this play, it's sort of a musical in a way. There's a lot of music involved. When I saw it, they like... Yeah, there's a cellist, uh, Julian, and who has lines. Uh, and there, there's a. Um, when I saw it, it felt very much like a play with music. Like mm-hmm. it, you know, they made every transition had some tune to it, and I think they even sang some things that aren't meant to be sung. It was, it was quite nice. Um, when I saw it, it was in the round. Cool. It was really pretty. Uh, Everyone in it was kind of spectacular. We couldn't really believe it. We were like, these are college students like this. Mm. It was it was (laughs) a level, truly. And the design was really cool where anytime they would like look out a window, if she was in melancholy state, the window would start to rain out on only one side of the window. Mm, kind of that's like cool. into some potted plants and stuff but we didn't we couldn't really see where it was coming from and the the windows were just hanging from the ceiling they weren't um on a wall or anything like that so it was, it was really fun it was really interesting very theatrical and it definitely tinted my vision of this play um which but i guess we should just sort of step through it's it's it follows tilly right mm-hmm. and tilly is this woman who has a melancholy about her and people find it really attractive Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's kind i mean that's like the basic beginning of this right and that obviously thematically has a lot to say um which i i you know i think you can take different things from that but also then once she starts to become more uh, happy is the word she constantly uses. I'm happy now. No, I'm not. I don't feel that way anymore. I'm happy now, which sometimes feels like a bipolarity thing and sometimes feels like a true, like a finding of herself and mm-hmm. like a moving on from a time, a season or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden people are, they're stuck in the, in the depressive state of her and they want her to live in that macabre kind of like sad place. Mm-hmm. And she's moved on from that. Um, and obviously I'm just kind of stating the themes of this kind of simply, but like, what are y'all's thoughts on, on, on this kind of stuff? Cause this is, I mean, it's depression, it's deep, it's, it's hardcore. And obviously we'll get to the, the thematic statement of this, which she literally stands up on a soapbox and says to the audience. Uh, my first thing is the whole Vogel thing that you sent us, Scott. You know what I read that as? I read that as her railing against um, people putting beats and explaining to people how to overlap lines in the beginning was how I read that as. And then the whole almond thing. I don't even know that I read the foreword about the almonds. I just kind of read it as a spectator. And then when the almond shit came up, I was like, what the fuck is this? And then it made sense later on in the show. Um... I know for myself the way I and it I feel like maybe I read it from a different stance. The whole happiness thing, I kind of saw it as Tilly figuring her fucking shit out, whether it was through conversations or relationships or whatever, and then figuring her shit out and getting happy and then people people that are also very sad not being able to support you when you're happy and they think it's just annoying and you're being happy and you're being successful or you're moving past something makes other people feel small. So they retreat. And that's kind of what I read all of this as. Sure. Like your emotional state is affecting other people in ways that you 
don't necessarily have control over. Hmm. Well, and also just, you know, people not being able to be honest about where they're at and their full support of somebody. And, 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 and again, more honesty about where you're at, where it's like, for some reason, somebody else feeling happy or successful or past something makes you a lesser person. I guess I read this more as a play of people comparing themselves to one another. Hmm. In a way that's that even though it's not a purposeful thing, it's a competitive thing where it's like, well, if they're feeling good, then this must say something about me. Hmm. It's uh, Varys's line from Game of Thrones. You know, I take pleasure in the, the failures of my friends. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, kind of. And not. I mean, that's obviously more of a purposeful thing. But I think it's something that we naturally do as people. I mean, I do. A, I compare myself to people all the time in in a way that is not good for me or for my relationships with those people. Right, right. Uh, that's interesting. I, I, one of the things that I just came across in uh, research was the idea that she's focused on uh, pre-Freudian sort of structure and voice. It's Jacobian, it's Shakespearean, and it's sort of presentation. The subtext is out the window. Like she writes clearly, when Tilly is happy, she is happy. When she is sad, she is sad. There's there's sort of no in-between with that character and, and how that moves forward. Um, how much uh, Siege, just, to, just knowing you and what you, you went through... Um, what you went through, what you've been going through <laughs> as, as a person and as a human being. Um, do you, do you feel like you, that that informed you before as, as you were reading it, that your experience, you were, I don't mean to say you were imposing your, your views on things, but no. how, how did that, those two things interact? I think definitely this play, all of her plays in particular, I mean, it's more so for the next room play, but this one as well took me a while to get into it. It took me, in fact, I wanted to say this as a fun little Easter egg is I kind of wasn't getting, I, I was not getting the flow of this play until I got to the tea sandwiches scene. And then I don't know why I started reading it. Like every character was being played by Pam. And then I was like, oh, I get this. This is a farce. This is funny. And so I started. So, by the way, Pam, you should do this as a one woman show because I think it would be hilarious. <laughs> Pam Quinn um, who writes our uh, original songs for every single. Who is um, amazing and is, is a funny performer. And uh, I mean, she's more than just a funny performer. And the guest person. on our next miniseries. Yes. Maybe this was, like I said at the top, I felt like all of these plays were written for me. Maybe these plays are hitting me kind of at a really perfect time in my life where I'm at personally and with relationships and professionally. Certainly, this could have affected all that. But like it's until until we started getting into Baker or Vogel or whatever, I, I finally feel like there is a viewpoint being written that I'm like, oh my God, this is, she gets me. She gets where I'm at. She gets these relationships I've had and these failures I've had and these things that I'm working on as an individual. So certainly I think my own personal whatever going on right now could be affecting my reading this. Yes, absolutely. Because I, I had a similar, almost reverse experience. I think it's so much so much of discovering an artist and I I'm really am discovering Sarah rule is about timing. It's about where you are, what's going on around you, what you just read and all that. And I think like I had to stop as I started her right after we'd finished our, our Wilson series 
Um, cause I went and like read, uh, uh, golf. What, what was what's the radio, radio golf. golf, radio golf, radio golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did you did like that. it? I loved it. I loved good. it. Absolutely. <laughs> it's good. And I had a hard time getting into her. Uh, I still am having a hard time, but I'm interested enough that I want to keep going. So I think mm-hmm. that that's the interesting thing. As I sat down to read Melancholy Play, I'd read Eurydice first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sat That's down I with this first and I, I very carefully read all of her introductory stuff and all of her setup and costumes and all that good stuff. And I was like, this is a farce. I'm going to read it like a farce. And mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I, I like it all clicked for me right away uh, in terms of where she was going and, and the picture she was painting. I had like things that would pop up. So thinking about like, how would we do this? How would we do this as a show at Sacred Fools or a small mm-hmm, theater? Mm-hmm. And I was like, Julian, a goddamn cellist. Goddamn cellist is going to cost a lot of fucking <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like Someone's you know, dating a cellist. So I got distracted by those little things. Like, yep. like You also have to pay for the rights to use the music that's pre-written for it. It's oh, a whole shit. other whole other rights payment it says in the beginning of the, my script. Huh, but doesn't okay. doesn't it say that you can also use your own music? You don't yeah. have to use it. Yeah. yeah, and I I I uh, meant to say this earlier actually in my context is that I was about to be producing this with Two Cents Theater Group this season. Oh, in fact, oh. it would be it would have closed a, a month and a half ago. Or no, it was at, no. Excuse me, it was going to be our uh, mental health awareness play last year. Mm. That's what it was cool. going to be didn't happen because of covid obviously but we were starting to like put this together we were looking for directors for this like straight up trying to get this cast in a few weeks kind of oh thing. wow um, oh which by the way in 2005 they did this at the echo really here in la yeah i read that just at the in, you ever been uh, to the echo oh yeah it's tiny it's a cool i know they do a lot of stuff i That's can't cool. remember when i've been there but yeah i just read that in the top of the script Interesting. Yeah, but so uh, uh, what was my point? I don't remember. But I was going to be using the music. Oh, right. One of the ways that I sold this when I pitched it to Two Cents to Kristen Boulay, shout out. I was shout like, I was like uh, this also gives us an opportunity to get some of our musician friends in here to like to make some music and do, and maybe we have a band, maybe we have whatever. So that was an interesting side of this um, that I think that would be cool to like produce your own melodies and music to to go with it uh, i think absolutely and what had happened when um when i saw it actually is that they had made their own music it was really interesting and there were uh other students playing the music so it felt cool it felt very cool um i think she says in the beginning that there were two productions and there's two sets of music that you can get potentially get the rights to i can't remember now yeah uh something to that effect so there's more than one option um, I wish you could hear them and make it. Yes. But I think that if I were to do it, like the, the nerd in me, you'd have a trombone instead. No, I wouldn't have a trombone <laughs> instead. It's, it's very specific. I also have a question about that character who doesn't speak and they, they describe him as the unfeeling musician. And then he speaks at the end. Yeah. Uh huh. What did you guys, I wasn't quite sure what to take away from that. Uh, what did you guys think? I just loved it. It reminded me of the moment in America's Funniest Home Videos when Bob Saget went up to the living room where people were always watching TV in the opening credits. Oh, right. And he went in and walked around him and nobody paid attention to them. But it was this moment of like, oh, that we always see them, but we never see them like 
Bob never interacts with them, blah, blah, blah. Does that, Bailey, you're looking questionable. Do you not I'm, rem- I'm wondering where you're <laughs> headed with this. I don't know. I, I, no, it was just one of those moments where it's like, he speaks, he's part, like, because I, I kind of laughed to myself when they turned to him and said, hey, man, and he just talked back. And it was like, yeah, I've been here the whole, yeah, I'm a person, I can talk to you too. I, right. I just kind of enjoyed it it was just this moment of levity where it's like he's been creating this mood and this beautiful music and setting the tone in a lot of scenes or the tone in the end of scenes and then all of a sudden it's like oh hi yeah no i'm just like you i just can play the cello (laughs) yeah he uh and then like metaphorically um scott i think it it actually in my opinion and maybe i just don't get it and that's my fault but like it it falls into a lot of what i'm going to say about eurydice which is where i feel like it's trying to be a deep metaphor that isn't hitting that i or i'm not picking up on it if it is right so it might be um it might be something you know it might just be a theatrical device which yeah, i which is what i chalk it up to i i kept coming back to her poetry that she had started out as a poet. Right. That's so evident. And in there are times it's gloriously beautiful and it's gloriously illuminating as a theater artist. Yeah. Um, and there are times where I'm, I'm like, this must be maddening trying to yeah. deal, deal with it. Especially this script and Eurydice are very much a bridge between poetry and playwriting. Right. Which is, yeah. you know, and so again, to bring it back to like the August Wilson thing where August Wilson is using poetry to inform the artists making it, she's using poetry to give license to the artists, artists making it in a way, um, which I like, I uh, appreciate. Um, and it's the space between the words that matters just as much as the words, which is why I think reading these is about half as interesting as seeing them, right? I I, I would imagine so, and yeah. and I really, that's what I I just have to go see these. Yeah, uh, I mean, especially melancholy play. Like on this reread, I've read it a bunch. Like I was gonna produce it, like all this stuff. Like I, on this reread, I was kind of just going like, oh right, in this scene, and then oh, oh okay, yeah, in this scene, and then by the end of it, I was like, right, yeah, it's good, it's cute, it's I I like it, I like what it is, exciting. I'd love to see it again. I'd love to produce it. Great, but. That after having Vogel and Kane and Wilson and Churchill like stuck in my craw for as long as they are, that I can like pick up this play and then put it down and be like, okay, yeah. I think that's sort of the difference here. Um, but I also think that, especially in terms of what it's saying about you know, misdiagnosis of things like melancholia, right? Like, I mean, people all the time go into a doctor's office and they say, I'm feeling these things I'm or a therapist or a psychologist or whatever it may be. And they say, these are the things I'm feeling. And they get diagnosed with melancholia. They get told, Oh, you're just, you're just sad. A lot of teenagers get told this, right. Mm-hmm. And it's really fucked up. Right. And it's, it's a horrible misdiagnosis because it doesn't exist. It's a made up thing. Melancholia is not real. So when you tell somebody that they have that and they go, okay. And they go and they look it up and it says, oh, it's a fantasy disease. Right. That people tell you when, and we'll get into this with in the next room too, with like hysteria and things like that. Right. Where it's like, this is a made up thing that has been placed onto us. And so it, it's a good amplification of that idea especially with the fact that she's at one point she's just happy she's not melancholy anymore and there's a difference there but then you have someone turn into an actual almond Mm. because they go so deep past melancholy 
into de true depression that they shrivel up and grow bark and become an actual almond. Yeah. Right. And that's, yeah. that ends up being what this whole play is kind of about and what it's following. And it gives us sort of a roadmap in a small way, not a huge one, but it gives us, it gives us a spark of a roadmap, the beginnings, the starting line of how to talk to somebody who is dealing with the deepest form of depression, how to be there for somebody. And she even literally, like I said before, stands up on a soapbox and says, when someone in your social circle becomes so melancholy that they stop moving, it is your duty as a human being to go find them. It is not enough to seek medical attention. It is not enough to ask them how they are feeling. You must go where they are and get them. It is up to all of us to save Francis. It is part of the social contract. Yeah. Well, and I think that's something we're all experiencing through this quarantine thing. I mean, yeah. it's like I, the amount of, because I'm not seeing all of my friends, I would normally be seeing in rehearsals. I'd be seeing them at shows. I'd be seeing them at production meetings. And now I'm having to maintain these friendships in, in a way that, professionalism doesn't involve which made it way easier before and now even this last week I was making a list in my mind of people that I know that are particularly going through a hard time right now and going out and buying greeting cards or making that phone call or sending that text message and it's tiny but it's a thing you know that like I mean I, I think we know plenty of people before all of this craziness happened mm -hmm. that it's like I should call them I should text I should see how they're doing and how yeah. How many times have we said that to ourselves and then not done it? True. And how many people do we not know that are going through it, right? Who Absolutely. Who we don't think about because they can put on a facade. Like, you know, not everybody has that superpower to be able to uh, walk into Sacred Fool's bar and, and, and have a smiling face and then go home and not be okay. You right. know, that's hard. It's it's tough. And, and we should say now, I mean, we say it all the time on this podcast. We are, we are massive proponents of of getting help being help mm -hmm. you know helping each other uh and if you have any type of depressive uh tendencies or anything beyond melancholy um you know seek help but also if you know anyone who is who's going through that be the help go talk get them. yeah and talk. that's why this play works because mm -hmm. by the end of it it's just trying to say that it's not really trying to do a whole lot more. It's theatrical, it's poetic, it's musical, it's fun, it's it's flighty, it's goofy. You can follow one, you can kind of hate people at times. It's a farce. And on the front it says a contemporary farce, which I like. <laughs> it's a good play. Yeah, it is. It's a good play. Does it does it make me feel like how to how I learned to drive did? No, you know right. what I mean? Like, does it stick in my crawl like a, you know, just like, is it stabbed in my gut? No. And that's okay. I don't always need theater to be that. Right. right. Exactly. You know? And yeah. I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. The, the note that I had was the day after I read it, I had for, it had left me entirely. It just mm. had left me. And as I went back to it, I was like, oh, this is cool. And uh, I like so much of what's going on. I love the theatricality. I love yeah. what she's trying to say. And um, 
I think that she tries, she's also trying in many ways to create a cohesive theater language. And she talks about it in one of her interviews that you, you know, one of the challenges of doing any theater is that you're coming in and you have 800 people who all have gone to 800 different schools and have 800 different processes. Mm -hmm. And you have to sort of cut through and create a, a singular language in, in four weeks, yeah, <laughs> four to six weeks and, and do that. And so that's an interesting element of, of her, her stuff. But I think you, Bailey, you just mentioned Churchill yeah, and I kept thinking of Churchill as I was reading what we had read, and I'm intrigued to read even more be because of that. Mm -hmm. But I, I, it didn't, it didn't, it did not hit me in the gut. And and you're right, I don't need theater to do that all the time. Um, but it 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 left me. I I I would be a notch below good. Like, I'm glad this play exists. I, I appreciate the stuff that she was trying to do with it. I was tickled reading it. Um, I just don't know where I would be. I just need to see it. I really just need to see it. You need to see well, it. Well, well, and I would say, too, I wouldn't put Churchill and Rule on the same level this way because I feel like Churchill dealt with some macro stuff, some historical stuff, some bigger stuff, and I feel like Rule is dealing on a personal human shit that we go through on a day-to-day -day basis but i would compare her to vogel absolutely would, yeah, yeah there, there's absolutely. similarities and uh, and in the in the way in the formatting even kane a little mm -hmm. bit of kane i come i compare her to baker too i sure. mean yeah, there's there's a lot of similarities. Churchill's kind of on this other plane. Well, and she's making. <laughs> I mean, Churchill Agreed. was also. I, I keep thinking about what pigs and dogs, where yeah. she's making these these big statements about like colonization is the problem, white people are the problem for all of these big problems. Yeah. Whereas Rule is saying like, stop gaslighting people and passing down shitty generational stuff. Mm -hmm. I think um, I, I I I agree, and I disagree my comparison to churchill was that it, that rules stuff seems very varied very varied in terms of where she's <laughs> like like uh in the next room is i y'all should play. read passion play y'all should read her passion i want to read passion play really bad because it, it's it, on it's, it's saved yeah it's if you want to talk about macro you want to talk about like okay like I mean, it's just you know it is difficult with this podcast, and we feel this with every single miniseries where we're trying to talk about you know a playwright, but we've only read a few of their works, right? Right. But like on a, uh, I, this is one of those that I've I've read enough of them. I've I've you know I've seen Stage Kiss. Um, I I've uh, read uh, Passion Play twice because mm -hmm. I just I like it a lot. I think everyone should check that out. Um, but she's she's got a very varied uh, uh, situation going on. Her IMDb is large. <laughs> well, yeah, and she's trying to change things up and explore different things. Yeah, she, I read a great quote from her, and I think CJ had, had said this. So to echo that, that she likes the idea of people saying the most normal, regular things in the most extraordinary places and situations. Hmm. Or she likes people saying the most extraordinary things in the absolutely most mundane places right. and situations as you can imagine. Sure, and I think it's a that's a great sort of jumping off point for all the stuff she's trying to do. Right. And listen, 
I want to say this right now. She is way smarter than I will ever be in a million fucking years. Like just <laughs> yeah. listening to her talk. If you like listen to her better. talk, yeah. She's, she's way smarter. So a lot of this is me just trying to kind of keep pace with her sure. and, see, and see how much I'm affected by it. The ideas and the themes are extraordinary and um, important. I think that there's a lot of important stuff happening in her mm-hmm. work. Um, I just don't know if I've been hitting the gut yet. Well, yeah. right. one of one of the plays that we're going to get to. Hit, well, and hit she me hits me. She continually hit me in the gut. So... I don't know. I just, yeah. I mean, I think it's also specifically where I'm at in my life right now. No, so. I think that that's, you know, that's what artists You really for. spoke to me. <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Yeah, so I think, you know, Melancholy Play was her first legit play. Um, mm-hmm. That wasn't an adaptation of something. 2002. Yeah. Uh, very which emo. is very recent. We mm-hmm. haven't really done a playwright who was this recent in terms of starting mm-hmm. right because kane was done by 99 or oh yeah well they, annie baker's is kind of she's still going but she started current. in the 90s right or right, no? right 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 yeah, yeah. um but no remember. so that's kind of interesting um you know yale rep which we've talked about a lot uh Woo-hoo. on this podcast but i think we you know we've done melancholy a good justice i think everyone should read it it's it's a solid play it really is good um i have a lot to say about it it may or may not make my number one on this list so we'll see um i haven't decided yet uh so let's go on to the next one yeah we cool with that because i have many many things to say about eurydice cj break it down cj's breakdown a retelling of the myth of Orpheus from the perspective of Eurydice, his wife, focusing on Eurydice's choice to return to Earth with Orpheus or to stay in the underworld with her father, a character added and created by Rule. Yes. Eurydice. Eurydice. I saw this production. Um, they did some really cool things with the like the way that the elevator was. I loved that image in the script. It's yes, very cool. I liked the river. They made it out of like broken CDs and stuff. It was very cool looking. (laughs) Very excited about the show. Um, It wasn't good, Uh, and I wonder if it. I wondered if it was the play or if it was the production. And on reread, uh, it was the production for sure. Okay. but I have some things to say. First of all, though, I think we should say this. This myth, the Orpheus Eurydice myth, is all <laughs> over the fucking place. Yeah, how many plays? How many plays? Hades Town. Hades Town. Ennui, uh, wrote oh a Eurydice. There's so been many. a lot. Scott and I were talking about this. There's been a million Eurydices. And it's always called, well, I guess it is about, I mean, it's always about Eurydice. No, it's like always it's always about Orpheus. <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, did you no. say Orpheus or Morpheus? Because Orpheus. those are two different men. Okay. Orpheus. I mean, the the I think that what was the point of doing this was to give her voice, right? I mean, to on we wrote agency. a Eurydice that was about her. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, turn of the century French writing. So it's not like, it's nothing like rule, but. I do think yeah. this is the, f- the only one I know of anyway, that really gives her agency. 
um, which I actually don't know that I love as a choice, and we can get into that. Okay. Uh, but, it, yeah, I mean, you know, there's definitely more romantic kind of goth versions of this story is how I normally picture it, right? Or even just knowing the story. Um, there's kind of a more, like, drab version of it. This is kind of like a fairy tale telling of it almost, but through, like, sad poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, which I do works. love a good play with a bare stage. Yeah. This with some lights and rain from time to time, some cute. Yeah. When <laughs> I saw not it, it how... was not that. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> what about I, when I, you saw it? Well, go yeah, go ahead. Because I was going to say, every production I've read about is, like, this extraordinary, is, like, just the designers going batshit fucking crazy all over it. Besides like community colleges, no one does it in the minimalist fashion. It is always this massive thing. And that's why they even turned it into an opera, which Sarah rule wrote the libretto for. Um, It is because they were just like, we can make this grander. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Okay. Bigger. So it's, a huge show for some people when I saw it it was still it was small I mean it was a black box you know it wasn't like insane but they they did fully build out a set the elevator was moving up and down the rain was going it was you know they did the thing um and they they definitely wanted it to look like a modern underworld Hmm. which is interesting yeah Hmm. not I dig not perfect but it was interesting um uh, okay Can I give my, like, hot take on this? Yes. Yeah. I have one, too. Okay. So, you know how when you build a car and you put, like, a really nice engine into, like, a normal car? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like she's kind of like, OK, so like I, I, I take like a, a, a Corvette engine and I put it in a in a, in a um, Honda Civic mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. I can do crazy things in my Honda Civic and trick it out and make it look cool. Right. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a way she's kind of using her redesign of the myth as the body of the car for an engine that she herself built with different parts. She's putting a spoiler on it. Well, no, it's more like she's like she's she's Trojan horsing a story she wanted to tell already into she's like, she's yeah, like, she's like, that, I yes. have this story I really want to tell. How do I make it m- like more understandable? I'll use a property that already exists. In fact, a, a, a completely free property, a myth. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I think in a way, if you don't know this myth, even a, like you, you need to know it a, 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 at least a tiny bit to fully understand what's going on in this play, like to fully understand it. Right. You need to at least have gone in, you need to go in at the beginning, kind of knowing this myth. And that's why the ending choice matters. Right. Because if you know the myth, normally it's about this feat of will for Orpheus. Will he turn around? Um, he doesn't have the strength and he turns around and she turns into a salt pillar, right? Is the normal, is how I was told it in like fifth or grade. Or she disappears. Or she it just disappears. On which whatever. Yeah, there's a, there's right, a few right. different things, yeah. Yeah, but the basic idea is always, it's his fault because he fucking turned around. And we'll talk about the ending later, but I think in some ways, like she wanted to tell a story about like relationships with fathers and like agency and like choice and fate and all these things. And like the men and women's, the men in women's lives and like stuff like that. 
but she felt the need to use this myth. But I start losing some of what she's trying to do because it feels like a script about equating things to the myth. It's mm. sort of, does that make sense? That's yeah, a weird. I get what you're okay. saying. It, it is because the changes that she makes are profound. She adds yeah. the father character, which I dug. I dug like all of her Lear illusions. And by the way, she said that when she, when her kids are grown up and she tries to direct, which she hasn't done in a long time, mm-hmm. that Lear is her number one thing that she would want to direct as yeah. a, which cool. I found fascinating. I'd be interested to know more about her relationship with her father, to be honest. They well, were I was about to say, that's ultimate well, dedi- father relationship stuff. Well, yeah. he dedi- yeah. She dedicates the the play to him. She lost I saw him. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She lost him to cancer. He had bone cancer. And so I'll be I honest, really I'm more tight. interested in the scenes with her father than I am anything of the myth stuff. Like, yeah. I, I'm way more interested in that stuff. I'm almost like, do a... You, just do a death story like it, it, it i didn't need the the myth on top of it and now i'm 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 complaining about something that doesn't need complaining you know but right. I, that's so, just how i kept feeling yeah so here's my hot take if i may let's hear okay. it and then i'll do mine and then okay. you'll do um i go dead-eyed when people start talking about greeks or when i have to go see a, a greek. Uh, oh it's my favorite shit i uh because I've only seen it done well twice. I've only gone and seen a Greek done where I'm truly affected twice. I've never seen it done well. I've I've listened to an Antigone radio show that I loved. And besides that, I'm like... I've never seen any Greek play. I just like all the stories. I got mm. to I got to see Annette Bening do Medea. Cool. Um, cool. And that was pretty extraordinary. And then I got to see a college production of Electra, which I was angry to have <laughs> to go. You hate Electra, don't you? <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, I don't care for any of them. I mean, I care for them in the sense that I'm glad that those stories exist and that those archetypes exist and and all that. But there was part of me that feels like in this day and age, when somebody goes to do a retelling or retake of it, it feels... This feel, felt, and I don't mean this in a disparaging manner entirely. It's maybe a little sly. Um, I felt like this was a graduate thesis project. That this was a graduate thesis project for a playwright who had given it to a graduate director for their final thesis project. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great because I'm glad that those things exist because I've seen some astoundingly brilliant and risky and daring thesis projects and right. sort of school driven projects. But I, I kept waiting for a big twist to this, a big twist to the, to the myth. What was she going to do with this story? And I, and what she did was insert this father character. And that was interesting. And I wish she had written another play about a father and daughter. Yeah. Kind of what it was done. I didn't hate it. It was meh for me. This was the meh play for. And kind of to what you were saying also, it, it falls into that almost. Um, and this is actually, I'm saying this is a positive for it. Um, it sort of is doing what a lot of. Uh, it's sort of like Star Trek The Next Generation where I roll my eyes at a lot of it now because it, it but it created the trope. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, right. It's right. that kind of thing. So I find myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel I, I, I agree with you, Scott. 
I'm on the same page. But what's your hot take? Well, yeah, what's your hot take, Steve? My hot take, um, I see it, especially now that we've been talking about it a little bit more, I see it as her taking something that has been used a million times over for plays, for poetry, whatever, that is male-centric, that is told about the man, that is told about the relationship. And I see her saying, like, I'm going to make it about the woman. Um, and then, again, this is a totally personal thing that hit me there, is... The way that you twist yourself into pretzels to fit into a relationship, especially when you're with someone that you're really jazzed about. And then also seeing yourself in that relationship and realizing I'm not being treated the way I want to be, or this is not the relationship I wanted, or this is not the way I wanted to be loved. And then looking at the relationship with you have with your father, which I have a great relationship with my dad. Where it's like, I grew up with a man that valued me and loved me and treated me like an individual and treated me wonderfully for the way that I am. So why am I finding this self, myself in this relationship where I'm trying to change myself to make myself good enough for them mm. is kind of how it hit me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then again, it's just, I. it also hit me in a in a pretty way because I fucking love all this Greek shit. I just love it. Any, I'll read any play that's entitled Orpheus and Eurydice or just Eurydice. I love this stuff. By the way, the uh, the uh, the the line I was drawing was f- from Star Trek to the Greek stuff, not to Eurydice specifically. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was yeah. saying that I roll my eyes at Greek stuff because it's sort of like like the origin it, they originated it right it's it's mm-hmm. the first stuff that we really have so uh-huh. i'm sort of like yeah i know because we've already done it but back then obviously it wasn't that and that's how i feel about Star Trek. i don't know why i felt the need to right and it's it's just the retelling of every fucking story i i mean the jesus story has been retold a million fucking different ways in a sure. million different religions and rule did it passion stuff. play yeah, there we go. Everyone read the passion play. I need to read it. But it's um, just, it's a retelling of a myth that everyone fucking knows. And now we're telling it my way. It is. I'm not and saying I, that it's perfectly like it's done, not, but. Right. But I will say it, it's it's also one of those things where it's like, okay, comparing it to like Peter Pan. Peter Pan has 500 different movies, TV shows, books all the whatevers of different hook yeah right which one day we will do a whole episode on just we have to we will um absolutely but um i you know i i love peter pan i love the mythos of peter pan almost every single one of them i'm a huge fan of except for the one with hugh jackman that was hard hard to watch but uh (laughs) recently right before covid hit actually i think it might have been like the last movie i saw before covid hit there was this movie that dropped called wendy and Wendy is a, I thought, I thought it was going to be this phenomenal like art piece, independent film following this young girl who meets Peter Pan and like does all this stuff. But it's a modern retelling and there's magic to it, but it's all like in the bayou. Like it's not like mm, there's no fun. Neverland. Yeah. And, but the whole movie, I was so pumped about this movie. Okay. The whole movie, because it's from her perspective, which is great. And I, you know, it's the same thing you were saying, Siege, where it's like, well, okay, but let's do it from this perspective. Let's make her the focal point instead. Like Desdemona, vocals, Desdemona. It's the same mm-hmm. deal. Let's yeah. do that, which I'm all for all day, every day. Um, but then Wendy ends up being this movie about me sitting there trying to figure out what it's trying to mirror from Peter Pan. Because it was a little off and a little on and a little off and a little and where I kept going so are these supposed 
to be the pirates? Uh-huh. Oh, no, these are the pirates. Oh, wait. So, oh, okay, so this is supposed to be Tinkerbell. Oh, this, there's no Tinkerbell. Okay, there's no Tinkerbell. Uh-huh. Oh, you're, you're referencing Tinkerbell because there's a light there, but there's no Tinkerbell. Okay, and that's how I felt reading Eurydice and even watching it the first time, where I'm going... Oh, you're oh you're doing this from the myth. Oh, you're not doing that from the myth. Okay, cool. Oh, you added these characters. Cool. Are they going to serve as this Greek chorus? Oh, they're not really a Greek chorus. Okay, okay, cool. So who who are these? And I I found myself constantly wondering, is she way smarter than me? Which I think is the actual answer. <laughs> or am I? Or is she truly just throwing shit in here to make me go? Oh, that's not like the myth. Oh, that is like the myth. You know, and that uh-huh. to me is not always the best basis for a play. Not, right. Not the basis for the play, obviously, but that's what loses me. It's not the themes. It's not the intention because the play I love mm-hmm. is the father stuff, the wedding, mm-hmm. the, you know, oh, man, like, and it's told in movements. I love that. This, mm-hmm. As a director reading this, all the spaces between, right? It's a visual <laughs> poem. Mm-hmm. It's a visual poem. And I'm like, God, I want to direct the fuck out of this. But then I finish reading it and I go, I would never direct this in a mm-hmm. million years. Because well, it's not, it's just not something I could get passionate about in that way. My right. instinct was she was like, Eurydice, everyone knows Eurydice. I've always wanted to write a Eurydice, so I'm just going to write it and I'm going to add this character. But sure. Well, I think that, I thought of it a little more simply. <laughs> sure. I mean, but and you, it might just be that. Like, I might sure. be way overthinking this shit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's it. Can I ask a question? Sorry, Scott. Yeah. Oh, did you have something, Scott? No. Okay. I interrupted him. That's oh, no, no, you didn't. No, you didn't at all. <gasps> <laughs> question for you guys I'm not, I'm not finished yeah. the Hades character uh-huh. okay. who at have? first is called like the nasty interesting, the nasty man. interesting man I wrote this shit and down. then he's like the yeah. kid or the then child he's the kid, or yeah. nasty yeah. interesting man Hades yeah and the yeah. child yeah so why and again this might just be her being way beyond me why because there's no payoff why does Hades change? Is it that it's just these are different people being played by the same actor? Or are we meant to see this as one person and that Hades is taking on these different things? And why then is Hades a, a chi- like a seducer at first and then all of a sudden a child, basically like the British version of Dennis the Menace with like his fucking tricycle and shit? And like, wh- like what are what am I supposed to glean from that? Like, I, I don't because have... it's never talked about. Go ahead, Scott. You go and I'll go. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, okay, so can I go? Sure. Yes. I, Hades is Satan. He's the god of the underworld. He can put on any fucking form that he wants. When he first came to her as the seducer, she was like, whoa, back off, dude. This is too much. So he came in a form that he felt like he could come to her as, that she would interact with him, that she would talk with him. Hmm. It's also... That she might trust, trust him, whatever. It... There, there's also, um, and I didn't find this to be other than the idea of giving Eurydice age agency. She normally, in the myth, classically, she doesn't say much. She doesn't have much of her right. own thing in it. But it's also how men interact. It's it's a, a, a woman interacting with many faces of man. So there's the child, there's the, the man baby who's trying to be manipulative and guilt tripping. There's the seducer guy who's trying to be creepy and move in yeah. on her. 
So you thank have you, act- Scott. You have one actor. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> you know, I wasn't born an ally. I feel heard or seen. Yeah, you. Well, have no, to I work mean, I get it. that. I mean, at the end, and, of the, and, like, but it, 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 yeah. So just to finish it, I think you're about to say what I'm going to say, which is, yes. Yeah, so what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so what? Well, and, the, <laughs> and really, and the other thing is sort of like you know. So it's it's it is also pointing at like these are all different types of men in her life, right? There's uh-huh. the creepy men who seduce her. There's the children who you know whatever. Um, I, <laughs> there's the children who shoot her with slingshots. Um, no, uh, but you know metaphorically, I get it. Like I'm with it. I just don't know that I I don't know that it f- makes the play better, but maybe it does. I don't I don't know. I don't- um, in the production, I saw the guy was a horrible actor too, so it made it for a really. Uh, oh, see, yeah. that's the that's the part. That's what I wanted. That's what I want to play. <laughs> like I would, play eat, I would Hades. eat the, I would fucking eat the shit. James out of that. M. Woods played Hades. Ooh, um, ooh. Um, oh, James. That that block is just uh, north of me, by the way. Just north. James L. Woods. James M. M. Woods. James L. Woods. I think that's a different person. Is it? James yeah. I kind of I just want it to be the street named. I hope not. We did not name a street after James Woods, did we? <laughs> Jesus. No, that's the high school from Family Guy. It's ironic. It is. It's ironically Woods. named James Woods High. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, and, I want to um, see the difference. James and American James L. Brooks. Pearl Bailey. Pearl Bailey. Pearl Bailey. Uh, James L. Brooks High School. Um, okay, so uh, James L. Brooks of uh, of um, uh, I was gonna okay, well Simpsons, but Hercules? I was gonna I was terms gonna of endearment, fucking, terms of that's the movie I could and think and of. Simpsons and he produced Broad, Mary Tyler Moore broadcast and, news broadcast news and um, James the labor Brooks leader. <laughs> does, does broadcast news hang up? Hang, does, does it, it hold does up? It, Hold up! It does. I watched it the other day. It's yeah. um, Holly Hunter's performance in it is is pretty next level. Oh, I fell in love with her when I first. It's saw got that some problems. It's very white, and it's got some it like little white. issues. But it's basically like watching the show um, Newsroom, which yeah. I love. The sort. Yeah, uh, yeah, I need to finish that last season. I never got the last season of that. You crazy. Uh, it it now makes sense to me that the avenue just north of here is James M Woods. M Woods. Uh, because he was a labor leader and an architect of the not city. Not the same <laughs> as the douchey <laughs> racist. Not the same as the, Trump, supporting Trump supporting Hades, Hades playing uh, motherfucker. Okay. So <laughs> that's, that's probably going to wrap us up for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've talked about James Woods and James Wikipedia, you're James Wood, everybody. Yeah. Um, no, but we, we do truly, uh, we have a lot more to say about Eurydice, and we also have a lot more to say. I have a lot more to say about Eurydice. I want to talk about the ending. Yes. I want to talk about the stones. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about everything. Um, and then we also, uh, we, we have a third play that we're talking about. CJ, what, that was your pick. Which one was it? In the next room, a yes. vibrator play. Listen, we know all of you assholes have things to say. You have questions. You have additions. You have all of that good shit. Please. We have an email. You can message us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. Send it, send it, send it. We want to hear what you have to say. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on our mini series, uh, episode one, part two, of Sarah Rule Dead Man's podcast. 
Uh, Scott, you want to thank some people for us? I do. You know who I want to start with, Bailey? I'll tell you what. She's a hell of a gal. Hell of uh, a gal. A friend, friend of the pod going to be appearing soon with us, but we'll keep that quiet for, for Our now. God. Right. Pamela Quinn for writing uh, our original song for the Sarah Rule miniseries, which you are about to hear. Uh, We want to give huge shout out to Ryan Thomas Johnson for writing our kick-ass theme song. Our theme song is better than your theme song. Absolutely. And finally, (laughs) listen, we mentioned her in the pod. I think we mentioned her in almost every pod that we do. Uh, We have to give a big shout out to the writer of the podcast, Annie Baker. We Annie. love you, Annie Baker. You love amazing. you, Annie Baker. Thanks for uh, reading all that Sarah Rule. Thanks, and um, <laughs> and Annie Baker, come have a beer with us in Los Angeles. We're gonna buy the beer. We're gonna buy the beer. We will it. buy the beer. Absolutely. It'll be eight dollars, but we'll buy it. We'll buy that beer, <laughs> nerds. We appreciate you deeply. Please rate, subscribe, review. Really helps us out. Follow us on Instagram and all the things. And as always, you are a Deutero Stone. Your mouth and your butt are the same thing. Deuterostone! What if this dialogue were set to music? What if what we're saying could be said in a song? Hey, that's not a bad idea. Perhaps we could use it. Music in a musical. How can we go wrong? We could ask significant questions. We could get important points across. Are we writing for art? Sort of faded out. springboard for fame. Get folks to trust us. Sometimes yeah. when he starts his bitch just to let him finish. <laughs> Nobody's in Los Angeles. Listen to the sounds they make. Listen to the way he makes her aches heal. Listen to the lightest quake. He can take the bad and make it less real. So here's the deal. I've got.